0: One, two, three. Testing 123, testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lecture 9, in my 12 part lecture series on the subject of defending the faith. This lecture series was given in the spring semester of 1989 at the Institute building located at the University of Texas at Austin. In fact, during this lecture, I give the actual date on which it was given, which was April 5th of 1989. It was my final semester of law school, and in addition to my full course load, and in addition to my half-time work, 20 hours a week, clerking at a local law office, I took it upon myself to also research, prepare, and deliver this 12-part lecture series. I am, if nothing else, a glutton for punishment. But seriously... As of this point in my life, I had been a member of the church for a decade, and during that time, I had done a great deal of research in anti-Mormon literature, anti-Mormon arguments, and responses to the same. In this 12-part lecture series, I drew upon that research, that knowledge, that study, in order to create this series of classes. I have not myself listened to these taped lectures for the past 30 years, and as I do so, I remember how immersed I was in the subject of Mormon apologetics. In this lecture, lecture 9, I conclude my discussion of the LDS doctrine of deity and devote a substantial amount of time to what is perhaps the most controversial and bold doctrine introduced by Joseph Smith, that being that men can become gods. And I show through an examination of the scriptures that the Bible actually supports and even teaches this very concept. But before I go to the class, I want to make the following announcement. There has been at least one listener to this podcast who is confused as to how to go about making donations to Radio Free Mormon. The reason is because this podcast appears under two websites. It appears on the Mormon Discussion Podcast website as well as upon the radiofreemormon.org website. If you want to make a contribution to this podcast and I thoroughly and heartily recommend that you do so, please go to the radiofreemormon.org website and make your donation there. Make it today, and I encourage a recurring donation. $10 a month, $20 a month, $25 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contribution helps Radio Free Mormon keep broadcasting behind enemy lines. One more item of business before we go on with tonight's podcast. It is February of 2020, and it is that time of year when the Brody Awards are collecting votes for Best Mormon-Themed Podcasts in a number of categories. I'm happy to announce that, yet again, Radio Free Mormon has been nominated as Best Mormon-Themed Podcast on the Internet. If you happen to share that opinion, if you think that Radio Free Mormon is indeed the best Mormon-related podcast on the Internet, I encourage you to go to the Brody Awards today. Just type in your search engine, Brody Awards, that's B-R-O-D-I-E, Brodie Awards, You will also have to enter Main Street Plaza. That's Brody Awards at Main Street Plaza. It'll take you to the Main Street Plaza website where you can place your vote for Brody Awards for 2019. Every vote counts, so please vote early, vote often. Vote for Radio Free Mormon. I encourage you to do that quickly because I think that the voting will be closed in just a matter of days. Thank you as always for your listenership, thank you for your support, and thank you for your financial contributions. Radio Free Mormon Mania starts here. Won't you help? Now we go to Lecture 9 of Defending the Faith, and at the end of this lecture, we even get into the subject of polygamy. I think you'll find it interesting to hear where Radio Free Mormon was 30 years ago on the subject of Mormon apologetics. I know I certainly do. So, return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon rides again.
1: As a brief review of last week, we spoke, uh, we were talking now about the nature of God in general. And last week we covered the subjects about the visibility or invisibility of God, the fact that He can be seen by men and women, and that they can live after the the event, as long as they're upheld by the Lord's Spirit. We talked about the image of God. We talked about his shape, what his body consists of. We talked about a few objections to that and uh, responses to it. We talked about Christ's resurrection in a bodily form, establishing that in the scriptures, and about how that biblical fact of Christ's resurrection completely explodes the myth of the Trinity. Then we went over a number of scriptures, about 23 I believe, dealing with uh, the fact that Christ and his Father are distinct and separate people, personages, beings. Dealt with a few other objections. And we had just gotten done talking about uh, what I have listed as objection number three from John 10, verse 30, where Christ says, I and the Father are one. Okay? We talked about how in Vines' uh, concordance of New Testament words, the word one means union or concord, or concord, or not Massachusetts, I guess. Uh, As far as the use of that word there in Matthew, uh, excuse me, John 10, verse 30. And then we quoted from Tertullian, Oregon, and Novation, early uh, Christian leaders, showing that they had the exact same understanding of that word, that it doesn't mean one, in person or one in substance by any means, but that it means one in concord and one in union, the same mind and the same heart, not the same thing. Indeed, just as a little side note, something I hadn't planned on saying, but I'll go ahead anyway, Uh, when the creed of Athanasius was finally adopted into the well, the church that claimed to be the Christian church, uh, many centuries after the last apostle had died, there was a great debate over it, and the main debate stemmed over the fact that they wanted to use a certain word in order to describe and the Trinity, and that word was homoousius. And the word homoousius means one substance, and that's how, that's how they wanted to describe God. That's how they eventually did describe God. It's one in substance three, but they're just one substance in some kind of mysterious way, which we really can't understand. The reason there was such a great debate about that is because the word homoousius never once appears in the Bible. And so in order to describe the nature of God, these uninspired priests who had to hold councils in order to come to decisions and not ask God, but just come together and try and come up with something on their own, We're using terms that were nowhere found in the Bible. And indeed, that's what eventually they did. So that word, homoousius, describing God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost as one substance is never found in the Bible, but is in the Creed of Athanasius, which is accepted, as I said last week, by virtually every other single uh, professing Christian church in the world except for ours today. Now there is, let me ask you this question little trivia time again. Where do you suppose is the best place in all four standard works that explains how God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, are one? The Bible. Okay, that is one standard work, okay? Could you, would you care to oh, be more specific? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty big book there. And the Bible, I would say that's right. That's one thing that would shock people. I think, outside the church, you know, they think, oh, well, I'm sure it says in the Book of Mormon really clearly, you know, explains your doctrine real clearly there, or maybe in the Doctrine and Covenants or in the Pearl of Great Christ. But that's not the case. The place where it's by far the most clearly set out is in the Bible, Britt. You got it. And I think the best place is in the 17th chapter of John, where Christ is speaking to the Apostles, and he lays it out very clearly. see if my caps will help me get there. All right. John chapter 17. Uh, Verse 11 and verses 20 through 23 are the ones I think are the the best. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, his apostles. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And there's the crux of the matter, that the apostles may be one as Christ and the Father are. Now... If someone supposes that Christ and the Father are one in substance, though I don't know why you know, Christ would be talking to Him at all if that were the case, but if that is the supposition, then it must follow that that is the way Christ wants these suddenly sort of transferred out of Christianity and we're entering the realm of Buddhism now, or Hinduism, where we simply lose our consciousness and slip into the great sea, and we all become one and the same. And yet that is something that certainly no Orthodox uh, Christian Church has ever taught. And then in verses 20 through 23, we find a repetition of this same idea. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So now it's extending beyond the apostles. It's going to be to everyone who believes. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Well, Protestants use the scripture to justify the claim that Christ dwells within every man. Hmm. And then oftentimes they'll just, they'll lift that right out of context and say, I in them, and thou in me. See, Christ lives within me. Oh, really? I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that. But um, here I think he's making it real clear that it is what Vine's dictionary said it meant, right? It means union. It means accord. It's not a physical merging of substance and matter, but it's this idea of harmony, and even perfect harmony. I think that there's another very, very good uh, reference that explains how uh, God and Jesus Christ are one, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And these are the two that I think do the best job of explaining it. 1 Corinthians 12. And verses 12 through 20. I don't know that I'll read all this. I may let you read this on your own. Or then again, I may. These, these verses are very, very short. Because here he's talking about the body of Christ, the church, all being one. And yet having different functions. Just like your regular body that you have is all one body. It's you, you're one. but You've got fingers that do things and you've got legs that do different things. And yet it's all the same body. He starts in verse twelve. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And then he goes on, and this is talking about the church, really. You know, there's different offices in the church, and just because someone's a foot. And might, people might think, well, you know, that's not as honorable a position as the head. Yet, where would the head be without the foot? Well, it'd still be on your shoulders, but it couldn't get around very well. So, in other words, every part of your body has a very important purpose. They're just different purposes, but they're all one body. And uh, though he's not talking expressly about Christ and the Father, like John is, uh, excuse me, like Christ is in John 17, which I think gives that scripture its superiority in this context, here he is talking about how even though they have different functions, Christ and the Father, or it could be interpreted that way, yet they're one. Okay, but they do have different functions and different roles to play in the plan of salvation. Let's move on now to what I've labeled objection number four, which deals with John chapter 14 and verses 8 and 9. Here Christ says this to Philip, okay? Verses 8 and 9, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now a lot of people take that. Christ is the Father. He who has seen him has seen the Father. And yet, we know that that cannot be correct. Why? Once again, we go back to John five thirty seven, which we dealt with uh, at least two instances last week. John five thirty seven. It's a very important scripture to remember. I think when we're talking about the nature of God. Yet, it's one that's not talked about a lot in the church. And the Father Himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His shape. So we know that Christ is not the Father. Because they both heard his voice and saw his shape. So then what does Christ mean when he's telling Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father? Well, the answer to that can be found in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of Christ. And we talked about this last week. Christ being the brightness of his glory, God's glory, and the express image of his person. That's what it means. They are in uh, nature and appearance exactly identical, Christ and the Father. And that is what he meant. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Because we're exactly the same. Not only in what we look like, but in what we do. Christ is, technically, the revelation of God unto man. Objection number five to the form of God. And this will come up when uh, some of saint is using scriptures that show different bodily parts of God. Perhaps you've done this yourself or heard it being done. For instance, you can look throughout uh, the scriptures and you find, uh, for instance, the reference to God's face in Exodus 32, verse 30. A reference to God's feet in Exodus 24, verse 10. His finger, Exodus 31, verse 18. God's back, Exodus 33, verse 23. God's mouth, Numbers 12, verse 8. God's hand, Acts 7, verse 56. So a lot of different references that deal with different bodily parts of God to try and demonstrate that God has a body. And I don't think that this is completely without merit. I think there's definitely some merit in this argument. I do, however, feel that it's better to at least begin with the idea about Christ being the express image of God. The reason why is because there's a very common response to this type of uh, argument on our part. And uh, here in the an illusion. Is that response. It is true that we find in Scripture references to the mouth, arms, eyes, ears, face, and hands of God. However, these references are symbolic, not literal. I'm quoting from pages 94 and 95. God uses them to communicate truth to us that we can understand. If our Mormon friends insist on taking every description of God as literal, they may wind up with a very strange God. Deuteronomy 4:24 says, "For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, the blast furnace God." Jeremiah 23:24 says, "Do not I fill heaven and earth?" saith the Lord. If God were flesh and bone, this might make it a little uncomfortable for the rest of us. In Jeremiah 2:13, God Himself, the, God calls Himself, the Fountain of Living Waters. So here, the idea is given that if we take these literally, then you're also going to have to take these other references literally as well. Richard? There's also the reference of, uh wings and feathers. I'm going to get to that one in a second. He does that one last, and I have a special thing to say about that. But that's exactly right. Um, in this instance, what they try and do is try and compare apples and oranges. They try and take scriptures that are obviously prose, obviously meant to be taken literally. I mean, Moses seeing the back parts of God, you know, His speech, meant to be taken literally, and contrasting those. Actually, they're not contrasting. They're likening them and saying they're the same thing as these other passages that are obviously meant to be poetry and poetic images. B.H. Roberts, when someone made this uh, type of argument to him, he dismissed it quite quickly because he said that, quote, one is under no obligation to seriously discuss nonsense. And I feel pretty much that way about it. It's really a ridiculous argument, unless someone is admitting that they don't know the difference between what is prose and what is poetry in the Bible, and they can't tell the difference. Now, the last part that he says here on page 95 in Mormon Illusion, he quotes Psalm 91, verse 4, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Surely this verse cannot be taken literally, for our wonderful God is not a chicken or a bird. Okay? That's the one they really like the most. Walter Martin loves that one. I've heard him on a tape coming down on that and saying, well, I can prove to you then that God is a chicken. And then he quotes that. Okay, so God's a chicken. As if that dismisses all these other very, very prose-type elements of feet hands. But according to him, it does. If you don't just want to leave it there, not seriously discussing nonsense. Okay. There's an interesting response to this. First off, you could ask someone, did Christ when he was here on the earth. Did he have a human form? Of course he did. Did he have a face? Did he have hands? Did he have feet? Did he have all these different parts of his body? Well, yes, of course he did. So, well, let's go ahead and look at what he said in Matthew chapter 23. And verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem... Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings and ye would not alright so here we have Christ who is a being with a body a man using the same type of figurative language so by the same token Walter Martin has just proven that Christ was a chicken when he was here on the earth because he used that type of figurative language. Now, this phrase, of course, does not prove that Christ had feathers and wings any more than Psalms 91.4 shows that God is a chicken. If Christ could say this type of figurative language and have a body, then surely God could do the same thing and still have a body. Now we're going to go on to subject number four. All right, we just got done with subject number three, in case you're not keeping track from last week. I know it's hard when we break them up like this. And this subject number four is the capacity for man to become like God, to become as God. Indeed, as you may know, that's uh, the whole reason behind the title, The God-Makers, for the book and for the thing that uh, kind of forms the basis for both the book and the movie. It also seems to be one of those um, doctrines that we believe which has this capacity to really get into the skin of other people and really, really bother me. But let's go ahead and let's look at scriptures that we find in the Bible that show, indeed, that that is a fact. As a matter of fact, uh, it's interesting to me that this is one of the doctrines which is most prevalently taught in the pages of the Bible. Um, You know, we think about uh, the fact that our spirit lives on after our death being very obvious to us. You know, it's something that pretty much every Christian church believes, with perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses accepted. But virtually every other church believes that. And yet that is not taught anywhere near as much or as clearly in the Bible. As the fact that man can become as God is. First, let's begin our examination of this by turning to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that, if a Christian knows anything about the Bible, they should know about the Sermon on the Mount, I think. That, that's up right there with the Ten Commandments in 1 Corinthians 13. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, Christ says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Christ giving a commandment to his followers to be perfect. Not just as men are perfect, not just to that extent, but even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And sometimes when bringing this up with non-members, or even with members, it's a good idea to ask perhaps beforehand, do you think it would be fair or just of God, or would God ever give his followers, his children, a commandment that they couldn't possibly obey? Of course not. That means they wouldn't even have a chance to obey it. They would have to be punished for not obeying it, and they wouldn't have anything they could do about it. And then we go right into Matthew 5, 48. <laughs> and significant that it appears in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount, is, I'm sure you know, is a blueprint to perfection. That's all, it's all laid right out there, how you become perfect. And when you read it and you say, my goodness, I don't know how anybody's supposed to do this unless they've got help from God. And you need it. I mean, some of those things are awful hard, you know, turning your cheek uh not looking after I mean looking after someone and not even lusting after someone in your heart you know these are very difficult things but it's supposed to be because this is the law of perfection and that's what it's all about to become perfect even as our father in heaven is perfect next let's go next let's go to psalms 82 verse 6 and here we find this uh, phrase 82:6 i have said ye are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, this little verse, tucked away over here in Psalms, might not have been recognized very much, except that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted it while he was here upon the earth in a certain context. And that is found in John chapter 10, verses 30 through 36, gives us the context and where he quotes it. Christ says, I and my Father are one. So we're starting off with 1030, which we know what it means now. But then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So that really offended them. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father, for which of those those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? So there is there is quoting from Psalms. Now, if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, it's true. Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. So very simply, and I'm sure you understand the meaning of that, if the Scripture says, God says, you're gods basically to everybody, or at least those people he was addressing here, why do you think it's blasphemy for me simply to say, I am the Son of God? What's wrong with that? Hear your own scriptures show that you're getting kind of excited and wanting to stone me for something that's not that bad a, bad a thing. Now, when this is brought up, especially this reference in Psalms mini, uh, critics of the church say, well, that doesn't mean gods. It doesn't mean gods. It really means judges, earthly judges. Okay? Well, if they are going to contend that, they're not arguing with me. They're arguing with the Savior. The Savior did not say they were judges. As a matter of fact, if they were judges... His argument makes no sense. All of a sudden, Christ becomes the worst theologian in the New Testament. Because that makes no sense. If he called them judges unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, why do you say of him whom the Father sanctified, you blaspheme, because I said I am the Son of God? I mean, it just totally misses. There's no connection. Christ understood it to mean God. And so I think that we are justified in believing the same thing. So that's the second First is Matthew 5, 48. The second is Psalms 82, 6, cross reference with John 10, 30 through 36. The third uh, deals with two scriptures, both teaching the same thing. Acts 17, 29, which says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, etc., we are the offspring of God. Now, Paul here isn't addressing members of the church only. He's addressing uh, a multitude of Greeks, people who are not in the church. And also Hebrews 12 and verse 9, which says the same thing in a different way. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? God is our father. We are his children you'll find that concept repeated throughout the scriptures in one of those ways, that he is our father or we are his children. And the two that I just referred you to there talk about us. Well, the first one talks about us as being his children. The second one about God as being our father, the father of our spirits, in fact. Throughout the Bible, we have reference to many, perhaps even a hundred or more, names, titles that God has. Almighty God, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Creator, just many, many such titles. And yet, there's only one of those titles by which God has commanded us to address Him. And which title is that? Father. Father. That's exactly right. After this manner, pray, our Father who art in heaven. That's the one that He commands us to address Him by, Father. Because apparently, He thinks it's important. Well, it is important because we are literally his children. And this is an interesting point, too, because every church in the world that believes the Bible professes that God is our Father. But we are children. Nobody else believes it except for us. For everybody else, it's just some kind of name, you know, it's out there. We're the only ones who accept it as truth. He is our Father. We are his children. And once that is established from the Scriptures... Then the fact that when God's children grow up and mature, that they become like God seems very evident. When a pony—excuse me—when a a horse, let's say, when a horse has children and they grow up, what do they become? Horses, good. A man who took biology, I can tell right now. When a a human has children and they grow up, what do they become? Not that they're not humans already, but when an adult human, they become adult humans. They become like their parents. When God has children and they grow up and mature, what do they become? And that's when sometimes you're met with kind of silence and a sort of perplexed look from the person you're talking to. They become gods. That's exactly right. We are the same species as God. And that's one of the great, great truths that unlocks virtually everything. Okay, let's go on to number four. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. Paul is speaking and he says this. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. we got another one right there. There's throughout the Scriptures. We're the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So, since we're children of God, we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And it goes on and says, if so be that we're willing to suffer with him. So there's a condition placed upon that. Can anyone tell me what a joint heir is? I think everyone knows that an heir is someone who inherits something from another. It becomes a beneficiary. But fact, can jo- the same thing right. Right. In other words, if this is a plot of ground, this is Black Acre. And that's for the condition, if you obey know, this, yes. this inherited. Exactly. Exactly. You can have a clause like that and you're believe believing Okay, so here's Black Acre. All right? And that's just a legal term for piece of land, okay? Yes you got Black Acre, and it's possible for a person to give Black Acre to two people, A and B, and to make them joint heirs, which means that A owns all of Black Acre, but so does B. B owns all of Black Acre, too. So this is a legal term. This is a term of art that Paul is using. And what was he? A lawyer. So you might expect this from him. That's exactly what it means, that we become joint heirs with Christ. If Christ is A, and we're B, we own everything that Christ has. Well, let's see what Christ is heir of. To find that, we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Christ is heir of all things. So if we look up at this diagram I have on the board, and you know that black acre now in this sense means all things, that's everything. Power, glory, might, dominion. And Christ is heir of all things. And we are a joint heir with Christ. Then what are we an heir of? The same thing. All things. We become heir of all things, even as Christ is. Going on to number five, and now we're gonna get into some interesting scriptures from the, the New Testament that just sort of stand alone and are are very interesting. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. See that again. And I'll change glass into mirror because that's what it means. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What do you see when you look in a mirror? That's right. Okay. Beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Because that's what's going to be doing it. That's very clear-cut. He doesn't know this reference. We use it to talk about apostles and prophets being necessary in the Lord's church, right? And yet, what this is talking about is something... it, It does talk about that, but the real meaning, the deeper meaning, is apparent. In other words, apostles and prophets aren't just necessary in the Lord's church. They're necessary in the Lord's church so that we... As followers of Christ can become perfect, just as Christ is perfect, is what the scripture says. And yet often we, we overlook that part. Um, 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, note that first, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. How Perfect. He goes on, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's how perfect, just as perfect as Christ is perfect. And that's why these officers are necessary in the church. Perhaps there's some link between the fact that very soon after they got killed off, uh, the Catholic church started saying, well, they exist no longer. They're not needed anymore. We don't have them and we don't want them. And most churches say that today. Perhaps there's a connection between that belief on their part and also the belief that we cannot become perfect as Christ is perfect. Since here Paul is stating that that's uh, one of the main reasons that God gave these offices in the church in the first place. 1 John 3, two. 1 John three two. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he, Christ, shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. When Christ appears, those who are the sons of God will be like him. I don't know how it could be any clearer. Revelations 3.21, Christ speaking, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. That's a pretty big promise right there. What is a throne an emblem of? Power and dominion and lordship. Revelation 3.21. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. There's a lot of meaning there, which often gets overlooked, I think. And finally... So I'm not going to read these again, I refer you back to John chapter 17, verse 11, and verses 20 through 23, which are talking about the nature of God, the nature of their oneness, and Christ talking to his apostles and to all those who believe on their word, that they may be one, even as he and the Father are one, that they may be perfect in one. That's what the oneness is talking about. And that's that's uh, talking about man's ability to become as God in Christ. Are. Now, Leaving the scriptures behind, let me prove to you that we must be able to become as God is. Let me prove that to you, all right? My brother is a member of Jehovah's Witnesses. He's very faithful. And uh, I'm just saying, uh, using Cameron as an example, because he's the one I I thought this up with in the first place. It could certainly be applied to any any other religion, all right? But they believe that... uh, most of them, by and large, will live on the earth forever. They'll become paradise again, and that's where they'll live forever. 140,000 will be in heaven, ruling with Christ over the earth. But I said to Cam, I said, look, forever's a long time, and we have to understand that we're dealing with eternity here. If we're dealing with eternity. You go any amount of time down that road, five billion years, okay? And that five billion years is over, how long do you have ahead of you? Eternity. It's an amazing concept, isn't it? Yes. It's a long time that we're talking about. And that concept first has to be understood. Eternity. Wow. What a concept. All right? But if you were to put, if you were to be in a room and there was nothing in it, how long do you think it would take before you got bored? Well, probably not long. Yeah, 10 minutes. Okay. If you got put in a room and there was a book in it, how long do you think it would take before you got bored? Well, I'd have the book to read. Okay, so you read it. Maybe you could reread it. Who knows? I mean, you know, it gets more boring each time, obviously, right? Because you know what's there. Okay. Depends on the size of the book. Let's say a day. If you got a library in there, how long? Okay, a longer time, right? But by the time you're done with it, if you're dealing with eternity, how long do you have ahead of you? Eternity. Okay, let's deal with the world as your library. A world of things to do. A world of things to read. A world of uh, books to write. Whatever. Whatever you like to do. The time is going to come when you have done everything, when you have experienced everything, when you are simply bored. Because that's all there is to do. And when that time comes, no matter how long down the line it is, even if it is five billion years from now, which is an awful long time in itself, what do you have left ahead of you? Eternity you have an eternity of being bored. You have an eternity of damnation. And also it helps to uh, express to people the idea that damnation can be understood as the inability to progress just as a river when it's dammed can progress no further. And certainly, to not be able to progress, to be in a state in which you're going to be bored for eternity, would be damnation. It would not be pleasant at all. All right. So, If I draw here on the board a type of graph, and up here is where God is, and this is where God is on April 5th, 1989, all right, here, on April 5th, 1989, all right, if we remain on the same level and we don't progress, we are damned, absolutely damned. And it's not going to be pleasant to be bored for eternity with nothing to do. Because that's eventually where you're going to get to, right? We have to be progressing. And getting better, and doing better things, thinking better thoughts, progressing to become more like God is. Now, over eternity, even if we're progressing at a very, very small rate here, a very small angle, somewhere down the line... What's going to happen? We're going to reach this level where God is now. Exactly. And of course, by that time, God will be way on because he's progressing as well. We have never taught that we're going to be equal with God as he is now. What we have taught is that as God is now, man may become. Okay? If I've seen it explicitly said we, we will never reach for God. Right. And we won't. Well, we won't. We won't. We, well, we I will lose where they are now, but we, we won't. We will never catch where they are. Right. Because, uh, as I said, like, even through our progression, it adds glory. Yeah. Well, it does. Of course, this is something that might be a little deep to get into with non members. Even this is a little bit. But I think it's very interesting that if you, if you can get these concepts down, get them to understand and agree to them, and I think they're very logical, you understand that there's only two options. There's only two options. There is becoming as God is versus eternal damnation. There's nothing in between. Or if, you want, don't want, if they don't want to accept that, you can certainly talk about eternal boredom. Okay? There's nothing in between. It's either eternal damnation or becoming as God is somewhere down the line. And I had a a certain degree of success with a person who was very critical of the church. And and I explained this to her, and she finally was compelled to agree that, yeah, that made sense. It must be the way it is. An objection to this. This whole idea about men becoming as God, and women becoming as God. Us becoming as God. And this is the basis for the God-makers. This is in their first chapter. This is Satan's big lie! That people can become like God is. This is Satan's big lie for crying out loud. And here the Mormon was being told in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. For God, Satan speaking, for God knows that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's knowing good from evil. That one respect can become his god. He does say it in referring to that one respect, but this is the whole thing, you know. They believe they can become his gods, but this was the great lie that Satan told Eve. Of course, if we turn the page to Genesis three twenty two, we're not even out of the chapter for crying out loud. We find that this was not a lie. Yeah, I means a lie, isn't mean, it? No. God doesn't... Yeah, I mean, no. Didn't even... It was not a lie. To think that everything that Satan says is a lie is wrong, because here. In the twenty-second chapter of the same verse, Genesis three, God says, "That's what happened." And the Lord God said, "Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil." The lie that St. told was not that Adam and Eve would know good and evil. The lie was that they would die. Right. That was the lie, and we believe that men will die. So I guess we're not succumbing to that lie anyway. Ha! okay. But really, they, they spent a lot of time in their book dealing with that. Of course, they never get to Genesis 3, verse 22. But uh, according to them, we're completely subject to Satan in, any way, in many ways. Um, now let me bring this up. I've dealt pretty much with uh, the main issues that deal with the nature of God. This is a very particular issue that Dick Bear brings up in his traveling show that he goes to different churches who will have him, and he presents it. And this is one of the high points, or maybe the low points, of his program he refers like these by Joseph Smith he has them on a transparency and he puts them up on a a screen in front of everyone so that they can read them as he reads them such things as from teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith page 347 although the earthly tabernacle is laid down and dissolved they shall rise again to dwell in everlasting burnings in immortal glory etc and also from page uh, 361 Some shall rise to the everlasting burnings of God, for God dwells in everlasting burnings. And then he looks over the podium at everyone who's there with a very, very solemn face, and he says, Now, who do you know who dwells in everlasting burnings? And the audience, with one hushed voice, says back, he just sort of looks at him and nods his head. And then he goes on to talk about how that's exactly who they worship. They worship Satan as God. And they even believe they're going to be joining him in hell. Burning, doesn't that sound kind of like burning bush? It sounds like a burning bush. There's something that's even better than that, which I've found. And as far as I know, I'm the only person to, I mean, I've never read this anywhere else. But what Joseph Smith is doing there, interestingly enough, is he's, he's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah was the one to first use this, this idea. In chapter 33, and first, well, let me go ahead and say, as far as Richard says, yes, God often manifests himself in a burning way, a burning bush. God is a, our God is a consuming fire. We read in Hebrews, different things like this. But this one goes right to the heart of it. Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Uh, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings. Now, does he say it's the wicked? No. He goes on. This is who. He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppression, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stoops, that stops his ears from hearing of blood, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. Okay. Uh, Chapter 33 of Isaiah, verses 14 through 16. That was just the first line of 16. So, if Joseph Smith and we worship the devil as God, if we're bound to hell, well then so is Isaiah for crying out loud. He's the one who said it first. Dick, get it straight. Ugh. Honestly, sometimes you wouldn't think these guys uh, know the Bible at all. I'm sure that they do know, in many instances, what the Bible has to say. It's just that they'd rather not bring it up, because that wouldn't help them out at all. Um, we have ten minutes left. I want to deal just very briefly in this time, because it only take a brief time, uh, with the uh, doctrine of polygamy. Okay? Yeah. Uh, I want to just make uh, the like, Omni Magazine. Omni Magazine? Yes saw an interesting bit that they took a reference, I can't remember where, from the Bible, something about brimstone and add, uh, Satan, like I think it was the prime revelation, Revolution. yeah, and they used like physics, they said, they proved that uh, with God, the temperature in heaven is higher than hell, okay? No, I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah. 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 So like that, like, oh. Uh, oh. Brimstone is sulfur, so you wouldn't yeah. look at okay. the, mouth of the So that's how hot hell would be, right? And forgot it would be hotter than that or something. Something as those lines, I can Okay, well, that's certainly interesting. That's certainly interesting. And apropos to what we're talking about. Let's go to polygamy very quickly. All right. Polygamy is. Uh, Something, of course, that we taught was given of God, both anciently and in our dispensation. Now, it's clear from the Bible that polygamy was practiced anciently. So in order to get away from that, people who write books like Mormon Illusion have to come up with a reason for it. And on page 109, we find this. In the beginning, God provided one wife for Adam. He gives reference. Here we again are not dealing with speculation or theory, but with biblical fact. God instituted marriage with one wife for one man. Now, here's where he comes into his reasoning. After sin began to darken the heart of man, he often took more than one wife. Okay, So this is something that wasn't pleasing to God. of course, you can't find any reference in the Bible that says that. But it's not something that was pleasing to God, but it's something that they did because sin had entered and darkened their heart. Let me give you a few examples of these people who had sin darkened their heart. Moses the greatest prophet in Jewish history, the man who performed many mighty miracles in Egypt and led the children of Israel into the Promised Land. Was his heart darkened by sin? Abraham, the father of the faithful, the man with whom a great and holy covenant was entered into by God himself, the man with faith enough to sacrifice his only begotten son in similitude of God's sacrifice of his only begotten son. Was Abraham's heart darkened with sin? Jacob, the righteous man who had visions of a ladder extending up into heaven, who wrestled with an angel all night long until he received the blessing, who saw God and lived, who was renamed Israel, from whose loins all Christians claim spiritual descent. Was Jacob's heart darkened with sin? David, the golden king of Judah, the boy God had Samuel the prophet anoint to take the place of Saul, the man God himself put upon the throne of Israel. The man God called affectionately the apple of my eye. The man whose name no less than the Savior of the world carries, the son of David. Was David's heart darkened with sin? There's of course a great failing in the world, the sure. exclusion of this church, but to look at other cultures and say, well, anything that they do differently from all our culture is wrong. Just because that's not the way our culture does things. That's ridiculous. It's immature. We could go on with others, but uh, you get the idea. The greatest men in biblical history were practicers of polygamy. Now let me quote from page 110 of this book, The Mormon Illusion, where it says this. Smith, meaning Joseph Smith, Smith went on to say in Doctrine and Covenants 132 verses 38 and 39 that God had in fact given David and Solomon their wives. Incredulously spoken. Impossible, of course. Except that that's what the Bible says. And as far as biblical scriptures dealing with polygamy, the best one you can bank on is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Because here we have a prophet of God, Nathan, speaking in the name of God, telling David that God had given unto him his wives, namely all the wives that Saul had had. 12, 7, and 8. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. you remember that? Thou art the man? Hmm. That's the end of a very impressive story. But then he goes on. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Now, what do we know about it when a prophet says, Thus saith the Lord God? What do we know about that? God said it. Yeah, we know we better uh, sit up and pay heed. I anointed thee king over Israel. And when he says that, the Lord God is speaking. Because... Nathan didn't. That was actually Samuel who did it. But so God's speaking. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives. And if we take out all the extraneous stuff, it says, And Nathan said to David, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I gave thee thy master's wives. And I don't think you can do much better than that. God did give them at least in this instance, give David his wives. And anyone who wants to contradict that is contradicting the Bible. And that's their problem. There are three common errors regarding polygamy. Okay? And the Mormon allusion, this book makes all three of them. First is the fact that they say the Book of Mormon condemns polygamy under any circumstances. And I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. Here we have it from page 110. The Book of Mormon agrees with the Bible on this. Quote, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines. Which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord? Unquote. Jacob two twenty four. And what is it that they never do in these anti-Mormon publications? Right, they never, well, that's right. And they also never go on to verse 30. <laughs> that's exactly right. Verse 30. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. And never go on to verse 30, because the fact is, amazing though it may sound to most people, including Mormons, the Book of Mormon does teach polygamy. It teaches plural marriage. Because it says right there that in certain, apparently limited circumstances, the Lord God will command his people to practice polygamy. If I will raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. So that's one of the major errors that's almost always made. And it's hard to think that it's made in ignorance when verse 30 is so close by. (laughs) Uh, The second error uh, is that they say the practice of polygamy is necessary to salvation. If you don't practice it, you'll be damned. And this is generally done by going to section 132 of Doctrine and Covenants covenants, and quoting uh, verse 4 out of context, which this does again here on page 110. Mormon illusion. right after that excellent. Yet the prophet Joseph Smith later had a revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 4, quote, For behold, I reveal unto you a new and an everlasting covenant, and if ye abide not that covenant, then are ye damned, unquote. Now, as most of you know, if not all, that's referring not to polygamy, but to the ordinance of celestial marriage. And it goes on and it talks very clearly about celestial marriage for the next many verses. And it isn't until verse 29 that God suddenly changes what he's talking about and starts talking about plural marriage. He starts talking about Abraham, Sarah, and things that happened to them, and then institutes that law with with Joseph Smith. So so taking verse 4 and applying it to plural marriage is absolutely incorrect. It applies to celestial marriage, which we do believe is necessary to salvation. Okay? Part B of this. Richard? Um, I saw one place where somebody was saying that uh, the Mormons keep control over their women by teaching that a woman cannot get to heaven unless she is married, like married in the temple. Really? They don't mention that that's how the Mormons keep control over their men. But... Oh, how the Mormons keep control of their men. All right. It's all or nothing. That's exactly right. It goes both ways. Well, I've always argued If anything women have a role bit so easier. Yeah. How's that? I don't know. <laughs> maybe Utah culture thing that if you're a woman and you never have the opportunity. Oh well, in that you sense, sense you have, in that sense, yes, you don't have the responsibility to find you so, something. you know, if, if anything. Okay, I can yeah. I can understand that then. Yeah, they definitely are, and not becoming a feminist society, and everything. <laughs> uh, The last thing is that often quotes are given from early church leaders that say polygamy is necessary to salvation. Okay? They say this. Um, And one that... uh, I really don't have time to do this, so I'll just go ahead and say that He quotes one such here, and he quotes it out of context. He quotes Brigham Young as having said, uh, which he did say, the only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. If you read it in context, and this is Journal of Discourses, page, uh, uh, volume 11, page 269, what Brigham Young is talking about here is saying that everybody needs to believe it, even if they're not required to practice it, because only top uh, 3% of the Mormon males at any time were practicing polygamy, 3 to 5%, very small amount. And he, and he was saying here that you need to believe it, because okay? there are a lot of people he was claiming saying that they wanted government appointments and et cetera and that they would just sort of slide by in the church and not practice it and not believe it so that they could get those government appointments. Yeah. To this day, as a carryover, uh, if an immigrant wants to come to the United States and become a citizen, they have to swear that they do not believe it. Oh, really? It's just still there? Yeah. And so uh, I know one member came over from Finland, and what she did was she wrote out a statement, I do not believe in the practice of faith. Good for her. Good for her. At least the Supreme Court would uphold that today, even if they didn't back then. Um, Was it really a commandment, plural marriage? Yes and no. What do I mean? I'll tell you. What I mean is yes and no. It was no in that it was not a general commandment to everybody for salvation, like baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, uh, being sealed. a wife in the temple. But, yes, to those who received it, it was a commandment upon which their eternal destiny hung, if they would be obedient or not. There are two main categories of commandments. There are those that apply to everyone, and there are some that apply only to specific individuals or even one individual. For instance, uh, many thousands of years ago, there was a commandment given to all the faithful to put blood of a sacrificed lamb on their post and lintel, And if they hadn't done that, they would have He would have been killed. But they did do it, and so they got away and out of Egypt. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Well, does that mean that we, on Passover or any other time, have to go out and sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on our post and lintel? No. That commandment is passed. It applied to them in a certain set of circumstances. And yet that doesn't mean that it wasn't an absolutely important commandment for them to obey. You can think of many such examples throughout the scriptures. So those are the main errors regarding polygamy that are often made, and as I said, this book makes them all. Let me close now, for the last two minutes, by telling you a very humorous story, which happened very recently, dealing with Dick Bear, who, as you know, is like Ed Decker's First Lieutenant and Next Mormons for Jesus. Uh, just recently, this past year, he was at a Sunstone Symposium in Southern California, and the, the guest speaker was a writer, and she had written one of the three books that have come out recently dealing with Mark Hoffman and the murders that were perpetrated by him and the forgery of documents. And this uh, woman was one of the three authors on the most respected book. You know, there's this yeah. one that's called Mormon Murders, which is just trash. It's absolute trash. But Salamander is well respected. It's actually good. And I have to hurry up and say this. But I have a friend who was there, Lee Polson, and he told me this. He was sitting there. And uh, question and answer time came. Dick Bear stands up. He has a question, okay? He knew it was Dick Bear. It was identified to Lee Polson by the institute director who, who was there. Dick Bear stands up and said, why is it that of all the Mormon DAs, the Mormon officers, the Mormon everybody who's investigated this case, all of them have left the church? Obvious implication: there's some deep, dark secret there. You know that when they find it out, they're gone. She looked at me and said, "Well, I'm—I know all the people who've investigated this church. I've uh, investigated this uh, case for members of the church, and none of them have left the, the church." So don't be surprised that very recently you're going to see a big story coming out, okay? That all the Mormons, it probably already has, it just hasn't filtered down in Texas yet. All the Mormons who have investigated this case have left the church. This is the way they operate. It doesn't matter. He knows it's a lie. She proved it in open public right there. But he's going to go ahead and say it anyway because it sounds good and it sells. That's the kind of people we're dealing with. We need a closing prayer. Who would like to give it? I will. I'll set an example here, okay? All right. Our dear Father in heaven, we're thankful to admit today in Institute class to learn more of the gospel, to learn more of the doctrines which thou hast blessed us with in these last days. We're thankful for them. And we're thankful to be built upon the solid ground of truth. We pray that we can bring this truth to others and that we can answer their questions to their satisfaction, and that in other circumstances we can defend the faith.
0: Well, that concludes Lecture 9 of my 12-part lecture series, given at the Institute Building at the University of Texas at Austin in the spring of 1989. I look forward to bringing you the final three lectures in this series, which I will produce and post as occasion permits. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.